Have you ever been on a run in the mountains where you're doing everything you know you should be doing, and yet it just won't come together? You're breathing hard, you can't seem to stay hydrated. In spite of all your training, the altitude is just really kicking you in the teeth. I grew up in the mountains. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at a mile high, and the mountains are my home. And I love training trail runners to enjoy performing in some of my favorite places in the world. So if you're looking to perform your best in your next mountain race, stick around. I'm going to tell you all the stuff I've learned to help you enjoy your time in the mountains and get across that finish line. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. Thank you all for joining me. I appreciate you being here today. Um, we're going to be talking about altitude and how you can crush your next big mountain race, right? Like one of the big things that sets running in the mountains apart from running on flat ground is the altitude. Yes, there are steep ups and downs, but you might find that elsewhere, all this stuff. But when you're running above four, eight, 11,000 feet, stuff happens to you. I mean, I trained someone for Everest and the stuff that happened to his body in that rate, in that uh, climb is undeniable. doesn't really matter, right? It is, it is a real thing and we can mitigate some of that going in, but you will have things when it comes to altitude. So let's talk about what's going on, why, and how you might be able to make it better. It is harder to run an ultra at high altitudes for very simple reason. Your body has less access to oxygen. There is less total oxygen in the air. It is still 21% of the air, but there are slightly fewer total molecules. But that fact is somewhat negligible until you get into like the stratosphere. There's also lower air pressure. And this is the big thing. Your lungs have to work a lot harder to pull in that air and get the same amount of oxygen. So you're doing a lot more work to get the same end results. And as a, as a side effect, it is way harder to run because running is an oxygen dependent sport, right? As we all know from when we push too hard and we start sucking wind. So once you get about, I don't know, a mile above sea level, your body starts to make fairly immediate changes in response to the altitude. Your adrenaline increases or epinephrine, depending on what country you're from, you start to breathe faster, your noradrenaline and norepinephrine increase, your body's acid base balance begins to fluctuate a little bit. You get a boost in EPO, you know, that stuff that Lance Armstrong and the entire cycling world use forever. This is why training at altitude can be very beneficial in We'll get to that later, but you get a boost in EPO, uh, erythropoietin, which is a thing that helps you breathe better at altitude. Your body starts to burn more carbohydrate. It burns less fat. You dehydrate faster, a lot faster. So ultras are such oxygen-driven sports that the decreased oxygen uptake can cause you a lot of problems. And we can adapt to altitude over time 
but it does take time. It's not an instantaneous thing, just like a lot of the training things that we talk about, right? So we are looking to optimize our, we, if we're looking to optimize this, then we need to try and figure out how to adapt to altitude, maybe a little bit in advance, or at the very least mitigate the damage when we get there. And we're gonna talk about strategies, uh, the train high, or sorry, live high, train low philosophy of food, fueling, uh, hydration, and whether or not those altitude masks actually do anything. Spoiler alert on the last one is no, but we'll talk about why. So first let's define altitude. If we are talking about medium or moderate altitude, and this is in quotes, that is 4,000 feet or above. For those of you who deal with meters, I'm jealous. I wish we had done that forever ago, but we don't, and I'm not gonna deal with it. So 4,000 feet or above. High altitude is double that, 8,000 feet or above. And this is where you start to see some struggle with altitude sickness for some people, especially if you go there straight from sea level. Most people are not gonna start to struggle at the 4,000 foot mark. You might notice, but it's not gonna like tank your race, right? And then we have very high, which is technically above 11.5, 11,500 feet. And then there's like a whole different world once you start to get to like 19 and Everest, right? But we're not running races up there. So it's not really relevant to current conversation. The highest most of us are probably gonna get is the top of a 14er in Colorado on something like Leadville or Hard Rock, right? So this is kind of what we're, what we're looking at. If we look at what is optimal from a training perspective, it would be this standard live high, train low philosophy. However, there is a bit of a caveat to that at the end that I want to make sure I mention at the end. But it is a popular mantra for a reason. After about one to three weeks, one for like lower or more moderate altitude and three for higher altitude, your body will have more or less adapted to its new environment. It has created a bunch of new red blood cells. It has increased the blood plasma volume. It has upped its EPO, it's done all of these things. And as a result, if it can, if you can get to your race early, like notably early, that's by far the best thing. We'll just let that cat out of the bag right now. Because um, if you can make these changes stick, you become a lot more efficient at carrying oxygen through your bloodstream. And you don't like you're gonna struggle a lot less. Now the live high, train low philosophy also very specifically applies to if you are racing low. Um, if you are racing high, then you also want to train high a little bit. Now we're gonna get into this a little deeper because you, if you're training high, you are going to not be able to have as much output. So speed sessions at elevation are dumb if you can avoid them that's what you got, that's fine. But if we can do our speed sessions at a slightly lower altitude, you will get more out of that speed session. And then if you can do, if you can live at altitude, you will get a lot of those adaptations. And then we would like to do some of our longer efforts at altitude. So ideally, if you're really looking to optimize and you can make this happen, you would live high in the mountains somewhere probably in the like 7,000 foot range. 
eight, nine, somewhere in there, you would do your long training runs also up there at altitude. Not all of them, but a good amount of them. And we're talking these like two, three, four, five hour training runs that we might need to get ready for a hundred. This is where you would do those because you would get used to performing at that altitude. You would get some of the adaptations. It would just be, it wouldn't be a weird thing when you go up and do your race. And then you would do your short like interval speed work at sea level because you will get bigger adaptations because you will be able to push harder. And this is very similar to when we talk about fueling your runs, right? You wish to, you want to fuel your long efforts. You want to fuel your short speed sessions so that you can get more out of them. And then if you're running for an hour at an easy pace, sure, fuel it if you want, but it doesn't really matter all that much. That's kind of the same thing here. Now, I realize this strategy is not realistic for most people, but if you live in a place like Park City um, or outskirts of Denver, where you're at like six, 7,000 feet with easy access to lower elevations, then this is what you could do to optimize your training. Even where I live in Salt Lake, I, I live at 4,500, I think my Garmin tells me regularly, and I could go up to Park City or the top of Mill Creek Canyon and do a lot of my longer runs up there, which is what I plan to do and, and what I have been doing over the past week. And that will create a lot more of that adaptation. And then I do the unpleasantly hard like VO2 and tempo sessions either on the street or at the gym or at lower elevation, right? And this is kind of what we're targeting. Now, what you can do immediately, say you have a race at altitude in the next like one, two, three weeks, something like that. Nutrition is really all you can figure out. And by that, I, I include that as hydration and nutrition. You are not going to create big training adaptations um, in the next two weeks. So what we can do once we get to altitude is... If we noticed earlier, I mentioned that carbohydrates become more important at altitude because you burn a higher percent of them. I don't care how fat adapted you are. If you're at 14,000 feet, you are burning a higher percentage of carbohydrate. So you need to increase your carbohydrate intake. Same thing if we are looking at fluid, you are burning, or sorry, you are getting dehydrated faster. So you have to increase your fluid intake. And it would be better if we do more of an IV drip strategy. The slower and more spaced out, you can intake your fluid and carbohydrates and sodium, the better. And this is true in general. We want to take this like IV concept and spread out our nutrient intake. But this is more true at altitude you're much more likely to struggle with stomach issues. So at rest, you need to, you probably need to increase your fluid intake by like 20 to 30%. And that is going to be true during your race as well. So unless this is going to push you way high into the unabsorbable range. So say you're already trying to target about a liter and a half, increasing that by 30% would be two liters an hour. 
your stomach might not be able to take that. You might get sloshy and feel kind of sick, right? So be aware of that. But if you are going to altitude, you're going to be dehydrated faster. So if your standard hourly intake is in the 500 milliliters, you know, half a liter to three quarters of a liter range, and you're probably going to want to boost that by quite a bit. And it will also be true in your day-to-day -day life. And as we know, if we go into a race dehydrated, you're just trying to dig yourself out of a hole as you make the hole deeper. You need to make sure that as soon as you land or arrive or whatever at your new elevation, you are going to want to start drinking more fluid. You will probably have to go slower than you were expecting you will notoriously need to hike a lot of these hills. And some of that is because once we get into these mountains, some of them are steep. And then other reasons are because you're just gonna have to work harder to pull in the same amount of oxygen. Your effort will be higher. So if you push your heart rate too hard, your digestion is gonna be a shit show. Dumping even like a hundred calories into your stomach at one time is nuts. Kind of in general, it's worse at altitude. Make it easy on yourself and make sure that we are trying to temper, temper this a little bit. I struggle with dry foods due to the need to drink more water anyway. Like you're not going to catch me pounding pretzels while I'm running because I'm already at risk for dehydration. I struggle further if I need to use some of that fluid for breaking down pretzels. Some people are great. Know yourself. And this is one reason why if you're targeting whole foods, think things like bananas and potatoes that do have some fluid intake and what else? So the standards and the standards still apply, right? So if you're pushing really hard, if you're trying to scale a steep hill, don't eat. If you're pounding down a 25 plus degree incline, don't eat, right? We need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. Consider this might be where even if you tend to do really well with food most of the time, like even whole foods, this could be where these highly digestible carbohydrates like cluster dextrin, the stuff in Scratch's Superfuel, or I mean, you can buy it on Amazon for way cheaper than that, or BPN uses that as well. Cluster dextrin, highly branched cyclic dextrin, whatever you want to call it, it's the same, same molecule. This can be super helpful when we're looking at altitude because your stomach is going to be in a bit of an uproar. So when it's been engineered to be digest faster and smoother, that might be where we need to go. There's also a lot of conversation about travel when it comes to performing at altitude. And I've seen a wide range of advice on this topic. Uh, I think the best honestly comes from Ian Charman. And very famous coach. A lot of you probably know who he is. And if you really want to perform at something like Leadville, then you need to go out there ahead of time, really realistically, like a week or two. And there's nothing else that helps you make adaptations to altitude, like getting out to altitude. For a lot of us, I realize this is realistic, unrealistic, and I will talk about it in a sec. But if this is your dream race, if this is how you make a high percentage of your paycheck, whatever, if you really want to perform at an altitude race and you don't live there, you should go there ahead of time and you should do some long sessions there. You should do some easy sessions, like get yourself used to the pace 
that you were going to be using in the race. Do something like a half hour, uh, power half hour or a power hour or tempo runs with like no gaps. Get yourself used to performing at that altitude early and make sure you take care of yourself in the process. As I said, I know this is unrealistic for a lot of us. I mean, we can't just take two weeks off to go run most races. I mean, I can't, and that's a real thing, but that would be what is optimal if you had the option. Now, if you are trying to travel, just get there as early as you can. There's this concept of the honeymoon period where if you get there the day before, it's better, like, it's better for about a day before your body kind of realizes what situation you put it into. And then it's really bad for like two to three days. And then it starts to improve again. There's a lot of mixed science on this. And logistically, I think it turns into a nightmare. Like if, if your best travel day is three days out, then that's probably what you should do. If you had the full freedom to pick your time, then go a week early. If you don't have that full freedom, then you need to do what you need to do to get to your race. If you can somehow finagle it so you arrive one to three hours before your race at altitude, then maybe you can leverage that honeymoon period, but you also risk missing your race and you're likely going to be stiff from sitting in the car or a plane like that close to start time. And a plane is also one of the most dehydrating environments in the world. So like if we're going to put ourselves in this environment and basically guarantee that we're going to exit dehydrated and all weird, then trying to race the following day might not be your best idea. I would almost always rather an athlete, especially if there's a plane flight involved, arrive two days out, spend a full day with a, in a recovery for like a two to 20, with a 20 to 30 minute like shakeout run, and then be more ready two days out. The small detriment that the altitude is going to provide you is likely much less than the detriment you're going to get from trying to run directly after your plane flight. Now, there are instances where you could try to leverage this honeymoon period. For example, races around here in Salt Lake. The Speed Goat 50K happens at a much higher altitude than Salt Lake City. Right? It's like 9,000 feet there. And I'm currently at four and a half. So you could arrive here and then try to like and then you could drive up there day of. You're going to have to anyway, uh, unless you want to spend the fortune that it is to stay at Snowbird. So these are options where the honeymoon period might help you out. But for the most part, it's just not a thing that is worth trying to finagle. Get there when you get there. Try to leave a day in between so that you're not coming directly off of a plane flight into your race and deal with it as it comes. There are a lot of hacks and tools and all these things that people talk about when it comes to altitude. And I don't know <laughs> exactly what to say about most of them other than they're like largely garbage. Um, their, their, effectiveness, their effectiveness is pretty middling, I guess would be the more polite way to say it. But we'll start with ones that are a little better, but probably not, still not realistic for most people. So altitude tents, right? Like altitude tents are... They got really big for a while and they basically make a hypoxic environment in a room. 
you set them up and they remove some of the oxygen from a room. And they certainly do that. They might make a bit of a difference in performance in like very high level athletes. They're not going to be the difference that make, brings you from like hundredth place to third. They might bring you from fourth to third. So if you're really needing to podium and you're close, but you're not quite sure, an altitude tent could be useful for you. But they come with a big catch. You need to spend a ton of time in there for about two weeks prior to your race. The body's response to hypoxia shuts down pretty quickly. Like it's not a lot of carryover. So you probably need to spend like 12 plus hours a day in an altitude tent for it to do much good. And so if you can set one up in your bedroom and your home office, then you're probably pretty good to go. Otherwise, it might not really be worth your time. And this doesn't seem to be one of those things that has a, well, a little bit's better than nothing. A little bit doesn't do a whole lot. And then a lot does very little, right? So you're, you're really pushing into something that has minimal gains anyway. And a little bit of it is just like smaller fractions. Like right here, I could theoretically set one up in this room and then spend all every like waking minute that I were training in here before a race. But unless your setup is like that and you're willing to confine yourself to such a small space, it feels really silly. Now they're also God awfully expensive. We're talking like thousands and thousands of dollars. So unless all or most of your money is dependent on a podium spot and you have a lot of it to burn, it just isn't that worthwhile to you. And further, hypoxic exercise doesn't seem to have almost any real benefit. Um, you might do it to get used to what it feels like, but it's not going to be a, much of a performance benefit. So you still want them to spend most of your time training outside the tent. And then there are altitude masks, which sell themselves as an altitude tent that, you know, costs 50 bucks and you strap it to your face and you look like Bane. Uh, they don't do that. They restrict the amount of air you can pull into your lungs and they make it harder to breathe. Essentially, it is like trying to breathe or sorry, trying to exercise while breathing through a straw. Um, they, they can have a benefit by strengthening your diaphragm. If you have not done like any breath work and you breathe constantly like up here in your shoulders and you have no real contact to belly breathing, then these could be useful to strengthen your diaphragm. They do nothing to help you adapt to altitude and they are terrible to use during exercise. If you wanna get the benefits of something like this, very honestly, you should probably just buy one of those tiny cocktail straws and breathe through it because that will cost you three cents versus $60. And even with that, it's just not all that worth your time. There are some devices that are specifically designed to help you train your diaphragm. And if you need that, message me and I'm happy to get you the link. I'll need to hunt it down. But otherwise, these things are a waste of your time and money. And the most promising thing that is pretty accessible to a lot of people would be like hot and cold training. There is a good amount of carryover from heat training to altitude. So for the heat, 
even a short protocol can make a pretty big difference. And this is further why I think altitude tents are nuts because I think they cost like four times as much as a sauna. So if you have that money to burn, buy the sauna and then it can benefit you the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, so the way we do this really well is because you need to spend a good amount of time in the heat to create some adaptations, but we can hack this a bit with exercise. So exercise already elevates your heart rate. So at the end of a normal like 60 to 90 minute session, pop in the sauna for 20 to 40 minutes, and then that will further boost your internal temperature, get you used to that feeling because it is weird until you're used to it, and it will increase your plasma volume. As I said, spending time at altitude increases your plasma volume. So this seems to be why this works. You basically kickstart that process and increase your plasma volume. So your dehydration issues are not going to be as bad. And since the dehydration is such a huge factor for why people struggle at altitude, if we can dodge even a portion of that, that would be huge. If you want a full heat adaptation, then you would need a lot more time. We're talking on the order of weeks, uh, but and it's like spent in the heat, like go outside, live in the heat. But a couple weeks of these short sessions has a lot of carryover. It'll take you most of the way there, and it will definitely help you with altitude. We're talking two to four sessions per week in a hot sauna. And if you have access to something like a steam room or a hot tub, it does not need to be as, as hot as a barrel sauna but does still need to be like uncomfortably, unpleasantly hot. All of the studies have been done on a dry finish style barrel sauna. So I don't know how to quote you numbers. 180 Fahrenheit is what they've studied, studied it on in a dry sauna. If we're looking at fluid, it's definitely less than that. I don't know what the numbers would be. Um, but if we're to spend like two to four sessions in a hot sauna, starting about two weeks out, you're gonna get some benefit. And if we start six weeks out, we'll get even more. And we don't have to do it for the entire six weeks. You could do like two weeks on, two weeks off, and then two weeks on, because the drop in heat adaptation seems to take like seven to 10 days. So you could basically preempt it a little bit, we'll see a little drop off, and then you'll get further boost. And again, this works because you're increasing your blood plasma. So you're going to get dehydrated less. Now, I mentioned cold, and there's no real physiological reason why cold training works. It mostly just makes you more resilient. It makes your nervous system notice the crappiness less. So cold showers or ice baths can do the trick here doesn't have to be long. And the colder it is, the less time you have to spend in there. But really, if you turn on something cold, and it's unpleasant, and you didn't want to do it, and you did it anyway, and then you stayed in it, great, you're getting some of the benefit. It is that choice of resiliency that you're actually looking for. And, and I did this today, it wasn't a big deal. I finished my run, I hopped in the sauna, took a shower at the gym. And after a hot shower, I turned the water to cold for 30 seconds. My heart rate spiked. I did that hyperventilation thing when you hop in cold water, kind of calmed down. It felt a little better. I turned the water off and got out. Something even that small, I didn't want to do it. I don't like being cold. 
spend a lot of time being cold as a snow like ski employee, it helps. It's good for your resiliency. Now, if we are looking at performing at altitude, like what we can do up there, obviously the hydration and nutrition piece that we talked about. And we can also talk about stuff like heart rate. So if you tend to use heart rate as a tool, you need to modulate it a little bit at altitude. If you are targeting a particular heart rate at sea level, you're gonna to wanna to target a lower heart rate at altitude because all of the effects you're gonna see are gonna happen faster. We get this weird thing though, where heart rate climbing tends to be a little higher, so it might be similar. But basically, heart rate could be a clue. If it's starting to spike, then you are going to struggle, just like always. And it is probably gonna spike sooner because you're probably gonna be dehydrated. So if you hydrate better, then your heart rate will be less of an issue. As always, we should take our training as an opportunity to learn what certain heart rate feels like. So heart rate is not particularly reliable, especially when we have a lot of hills. It's great on the flats. Even then it has a little bit of adjustment over time, but it's pretty useful on the flats. Soon as you start to add elevation and altitude, it becomes a very mediocre tool. So you need to use heart rate in your training to figure out what an effort level might feel like. That's really the goal. Now, if something is actively going wrong, first answer, as always, is slow down. Usually means you're dehydrated, might mean some fuel stuff is going on. If you feel kind of sick, if something is going on, if you feel a little crampy, slow down. It's not gonna end your world. Slow down for like 15 minutes. As I've said in the past, the fastest way to fix a food issue in an ultra is walk for 15 minutes so that you're able to run for longer. Don't try to push through it if you're really struggling. Take 10 minutes, collect yourself, and reset. If you are starting to experience headaches, however, this could be a sign that something is really wrong. Altitude sickness is real. It is a problem. It can cause you a whole lot of like serious issues. And Nobody wants that. So if you are starting to get headaches as you climb that seem to be fairly linear relate, linearly related with your altitude, then calm, like stop, slow down, go down about 200 feet, and that should fix your issue. We talk about this with mountain climbers. Really, this is why Everest is climbed in the way it is. For those of you who don't know, you go up to like a base camp, you go up to another base camp and you'll go back down, you'll go back up, you'll go up and back down. You like do it in a stepwise fashion. This is largely to get you used to the altitude and this helps prevent sickness. So if you're not used to 14,000 feet and you're coming directly from sea level, you might struggle with altitude sickness. And it's, it's a real thing. Take care of yourself. It can lead to confusion and problems. And plan on hiking the hills. I'm serious. <laughs> This is a thing that you're probably going to have to do at altitude. I know we say this anyway, where you hike the hills and run the, run the downs and flats, but it's even more relevant when we're higher because your heart rate and your effort level are going to be a little disproportionate and off. To recap, the most easily accessible things you can do are increase your water intake. You are going to get dehydrated faster, so up your water a bit. 
This could be 20 to 30%, especially in the day or two, day or two leading up to it. Increase your fluid intake and go in hydrated and then increase a little bit during the race to stay hydrated. And proportionally increase your sodium. We always do sodium in terms of fluid. It is not by time, it is by fluid intake. However much more fluid you're intaking, you need to take that much more sodium. It is a safety issue with hyponatremia. Also increase your carbohydrate. For the first week or two at altitude, three, if you're going really high, your metabolism shifts more from a fat metabolism to a more carbohydrate metabolism. It doesn't matter how fat adapted you are. You will need to eat more carbohydrates. So if you're someone like Carl Meltzer, who eats multiple hundred grams of carbohydrates per hour on his races, like I think he slammed like four gels. So what is whatever that would be. And then there's also Jeff Browning, who does a third of that. Opposite ends of the spectrum, they would both need more carbohydrates during their race at altitude proportionally. And then lastly, the sun. Be aware that if you're higher, the sun feels worse and it is worse and you're gonna get burned faster. It is no joke at higher altitudes. I've never gotten burned as bad as when I was in Australia. Uh, but aside from that, Park City, Utah, 7,000 feet has led me to absolutely re-respect re the sun more than I used to. And some of these races are done much higher. So just be aware. Bring some sunscreen or something. Zinc oxide, I don't care. Protect yourself. Altitude and your training for it is very unlikely to be like your make or break thing. It is not going to adjust that training. It is not going to adjust, like make up for a completely shoddy hydration and nutrition plan. In fact, it is going to point out the problems in all of your stuff. So you, the basics really matter but we can do a couple tweaks to improve upon that so we can get the most out of what we do. If you have any questions, I think that's about it for me today. Pop them in the chat. Otherwise, that is all I have on altitude. I will say I got a lot of this information from various sources, one of them being Coopcast and also from Science of Ultra. So I'll link at least a couple of those things in there. Jason Coop recently did an interview with Meredith Terranova again. I think it's the second one with her. And she is a, she is a gem. She is one of the few people in the running nutrition space who I agree with pretty much everything that's I've ever heard from her. So give her, give her a look. Um, that's all I got. Don't see any questions, so we're going to call it a day. I hope you have a good rest of your evening. And be back another time. Thanks so much. And I'll chat with you later. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, Please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.